Welcome to the DadWork Podcast. My name is Kurt Snoring, your host and the founder of DadWork. This is episode number 55, The Power of Intentional Indirectness and 5,000 Miles of Relationship Repair with Patrick Pittman. We go deep today talking about Patrick's immediate transition from college into fatherhood, Patrick's deep wisdom on connecting with our kids at any age, which I sum up as intentional indirectness, involving ourselves with our children and passing on our work ethic to them, the difficulty of raising teenagers when there's a rift between the two of you, and how Patrick used a 5,000-mile road trip to repair a rupture, the importance of collecting information before giving instructions, why we must gain the respect of our kids, how to start conversations that are tricky but necessary, especially with teens, becoming aware of our children's unique gifts and supporting them to the fullest extent possible, trusting the process, not the outcome, and creating and raising a generation of self-starters. Patrick Pittman became a father some 25 years ago and became an entrepreneur soon thereafter. In the time since, he's kept four children and assorted businesses alive through the thick and thin. His wife gets some credit. Patrick loves dogs and has learned the difference between dog behavior training and being in loving relationship with human children, something that once confused him. Patrick also loves jujitsu. In that practice, he learned that almost any rough day at home or the office can be remedied with a good roll in the mat, out of his head and into his body. Today, he helps e-commerce companies get unkinked in their marketing and customer service operations, working alongside his daughters in Austin, Texas. You can find Patrick online at ebusinessbrands.com, the letter E and then businessbrands.com. As you'll hear in this episode, guys, all I wanted was for Patrick to keep talking. He just hits the nail on the head in so many ways, and he is very wise. I was very fortunate to be able to talk to him because he has children who are now adults, and he has been very intentional and mindful about that process of how he wants to interact with them, how he can maintain relationship, how he can stay being a father and not just have that be a part of his past when his kids were younger. And I just, I mean, I asked him specifically, can you just keep going? Because I wanted to listen. So this one is special. And I'm not sure exactly what it was other than simply Patrick himself, uh, the way that he carries himself and brings him to this and the thoughtful, methodical nature of his uh, thought and his ideas. Man, I just got so much out of this as uh, a father preparing for the teenage years and adulthood because my oldest is only nine and uh, I'm going to need this training. This is the type of thing that I want more than anything is for dad, some dad to share with me. What do I even do? And that's part of this project of dad work. So I hope you get the same out of this. I was incredibly inspired by this conversation. And I thank Patrick so much for delivering such an amazing interview. So please check him out, ebusinessbrands.com. If you yourself have an e-commerce company and could use some help. Otherwise, listen to this episode and uh, man, you'll get so much out of it like I did. So let's get into episode number 55 with Patrick Pittman. All right, Patrick, thank you so much for joining me. We are members of the DC community and uh, I have had a couple of guests on from the DC and it's just such fascinating conversations because I know that we're all at a level that I, I trust what's happening on the other side. So I'm, I'm glad and grateful that you are here with me. So first of all, welcome. Yeah, thank you for having me, Kurt. The Dynamite Circle has been a good resource for me to talk with people about their business and that inevitably spills over to the life it's hard to separate where your work ends and where your life begins. I just had a review of the 2021 year with some other guys in that group, and we were looking at what happened over the last year and where we're going to go in the new year. And it's kind of a natural time to do this, but it was just, it was a bit of a surprise to me when 
um, the other guys went. And so much of what they talked about was their life, their personal life, their kids. You know, someone had a new baby born in the last year. And of course, how could your life not be completely dominated by the fact of all of a sudden having your first infant? And that's not su- surprised me, but I guess it just struck me how I was kind of expecting a much more gung-ho business conversation. And Yeah, that's one of the things I've noticed as well. Yeah. Is that like uh, there's a there's a level of business and there's a level of success that is sort of assumed in the group, and then the deeper conversations are like, okay, now that I know everyone's sort of on my level business wise, now I can go into what actually matters, and that's part of why I love groups and communities and masterminds is because yes, you get to tap into the collective wisdom, but it's also a safe place, at least for me, to be able to trust that I can go deep with these people. Is that sort of what you felt as well as part of the DC? Well, it's, it's certainly people doing real life um, together and their business is certainly the priority that connects us, but we do find commonalities in the ways that we relate to our families, certainly. Certainly wives are a big topic. Not everyone has children, but uh, for those of us who do, it's certainly another point of common connection. I think that may also be the case that I'm probably further along that path than, than most other members. I had my first child at 22 and that was 25 years ago. Mm. Well, let's get into that because that's the first thing I want to chat about is I would be interested just to hear how it was for you becoming a father, but I'm especially interested in how it's been going for you as your children get into adulthood, as you raise teenagers. That's the part that I don't know anything about yet, and I'm interested in hearing how you navigated it. But would you start by just walking us through, I also had kids, I think, at 23. Uh, What was that like for you? Was it something you'd always wanted? Was it an easy transition, or did you have a lot of work to do? It's certainly a transition from being in college to all of a sudden being a father. And I have to say it wasn't a a smooth or easy transition. It was the sort of thing where uh, I got home from graduation in college and I got a phone call from my girlfriend a few days later saying that she was pregnant. So fatherhood began for me uh, right after I graduated. And with that announcement, found myself on the fatherhood path. Now, later that year, I had just this vivid dream of meeting a young girl who was about four years old with brown hair, and she she walked up to me and introduced herself as Gabrielle. And I, I just had this immediate sort of deep recognition, and I, I woke from a sleep in the middle of the night, and I sat up, and I turned to my then-wife. I said, we're having a girl, and her name is Gabrielle. And I just met her. And so that came uh, two months before she was born, just after Christmas in 1996. And the sense that uh, we had not had any testing of the sex of the child, it was going to be you know, one of those reveal moments when she was born. And so I knew going into her birth that her name was Gabrielle and she was uh, going to have brown hair. And sure enough, she does. And sure enough, she's named Gabrielle. So 25 years later, she is actually working in my company today, and she is my colleague. Uh, Essentially, I'm working on a project with her this afternoon, and as recently as yesterday, we had an experience where, you know, a project has gotten particularly challenging in terms of the complexity of it. We're having a moment of asking ourselves, how do we make sure we really deliver on this, and can we do it? Are we going to be able to live up to our expectations we've set for everyone? And we had a, you know, a pretty challenging conversation in our work 
um, about how we're going to make this work and how it's going to come together. So from that beginning um, to where we are yesterday, uh, we certainly have, you know, to become a, a very important part of, of my life. And we're, we're working closely together today. How do you navigate conversations like that with your adult children? Was there some, I don't know, uh, formula that you go through? Do you use nonviolent communication? Is there some principle behind having hard talks like that as an adult now? Well, I do respect, you know, the work of Marshall Rosenberg and nonviolent communication. And I was thinking about that just this morning because my daughter had made a video for one of our clients that I was looking at today. And it was basically an update kind of video, like, hey, this is what's happening. This is the next thing that you know we're going to do. This is what we ask of you. And she phrased it. Uh, one of the things she made a request of our client was, and if you're willing, would you be, you know, go, would you do this thing? Would you be willing to do this? And that phrase I first encountered in nonviolent communication, what is someone willing to do? You know, would you be willing? It's harder when you have teenagers that's like, would you be willing to take out the garbage? <laughs> you know, at some yeah. point it's like, clean the kitchen. Um, <laughs> but the idea that she had picked up that from me, and I don't think we've explicitly had conversations together, her and I, about nonviolent communication, but that's how she phrased it. And I think that is a uh, encouragement to me. You know, things do rub off, uh, whether you explicitly talk about the sources of where things are inspired by. But I think that where, what I would say is we do have a common sense that we are going to be doing the best we can for our clients and that she wants the best outcome reputation for our business. And she's grown up with it because I started this company 21 years ago when she was four years old. So whatever she's seen of my work over the years has been in the context of being an entrepreneur and the ups and downs that have come with that. Uh, there's been complete downs and you know, kind of failure moments or times we had to move across the country, something changed, or you know, times she had a chance to travel to a foreign country and work with one of my clients just uh, you know, in a kind of a amazing experience in London, for example. So it's very much colored her experience of what it means to be, um, what the world of work looks like is through the lens of living with a veteran entrepreneur. And now she experiences it firsthand. Mm -hmm. What other things have you noticed that have rubbed off I love that, you know, this just rubbed off the nonviolent communication way of speaking. Oh, that kind of stuff happens all the time. But I also notice there are uh, more negative things that rub off as well, <laughs> in my case, at least, uh, with some of the things that your kids say. But are there other things, and this is sort of leading into principles, perhaps, but are there other things that you've seen from yourself that have rubbed off on your children that you're proud of or, or just noticed recently? Well, I think that the idea that you can accredit yourself is an important one that would be certainly have been embraced by my daughter, Gabrielle. And I should say, you know, I have four children. So whatever has rubbed off on one child is not necessarily true for any others. And I can't speak to them in any way being alike. <laughs> they're related, but they're not alike. But certainly in Gabrielle's case, she took up the idea of 
accrediting yourself as compared to being accredited by an institution. So if you go to college, you go to a college that's been accredited to grant you know, a four-year degree and it has some reputation behind it. And your ability to enter that college is dependent upon you passing someone else's criteria and being accepted. And then conceivably, you follow through for several years, do all the things they ask you to do, and then they accredit you with a degree. And I, I did that. I grew up in a small town in Montana and from a high school you know, of a few hundred people. And I went off to the best university that I could get into, which was in Vanderbilt University in Nashville, Tennessee. And that's a school that has, over the years, developed a reputation for excellence. And I was you know, around students who came there for that sense stamp of approval. They imagined going to law school after that or going to medical school. You know, I have a friend who graduated with me there, and then he went off to Duke for his medical degree and very much in the path of being accredited. So over time, though, as an entrepreneur, I think you find yourself having to invent what gives you credibility through what you can create. And as an entrepreneur over the years, I have, you know, one point in time, early in the 2000s, I was trying to create a software product that as I look back on it now, I wouldn't have had the words for it then, but as I look back on it now, that software product was essentially trying to create Shopify plus MailChimp plus WordPress. And that's a lot. Wildly <laughs> ambitious. I didn't, you know, but, but the world needed that in 2002 and none of those things existed. So my, my qualifications for, for being able to do that in 2002, I didn't have an engineering degree, let alone, you know, software development accreditation. But we created it or attempted to do so anyways. And when you start your own business, there is this idea you're not waiting for someone's permission to give you the job. Now, you are always, in a sense, auditioning, and you're earning to persuade people that you can be trusted. But there is this kind of, nonetheless, kind of fake it till you make it potential when you're getting started. And I would say that even that phrase, fake it until you make it, is a bit of a trap. And I, I wouldn't be as cavalier with the use of that phrase today as I, maybe I was 20 years ago. So I, I say that with that qualification. But I think that what my children have, have taken, for better or worse, is there is nothing that you can't get into and start doing if you're not waiting around for someone else's permission. That's huge. Yeah. I'm trying to get that into my children as well. And for me, it's been a little bit of a challenge because I personally have this perfectionist tendency where I want my children to live up to that. And that's not fair to them. I've done a lot of work around that. And it's now about allowing them to fail and allowing them to do hard things and take risks without me getting in the way. And I would love to come back to this as a specific topic, just how to raise entrepreneurial minded children. And it, it could just be, you know, being so close to you uh, throughout your own life and sharing this journey with them. But I'm particularly curious about what it was like for you as a father transitioning into having teenage and then adult children, because obviously I'm not there yet. My oldest is just about nine. And I wonder if there's a difference. I wonder if there's something that changes in you or that, you know, perceptibly changes in you when your children become 
more independent, more autonomous, outside completely of your control if they wish to be. So was there anything that came up for you over the last, I don't know, what have it's been now, seven, eight years uh, into adulthood for your for your children? Yes, I can certainly speak to even how I've changed or grown up in that last eight years, 10 years of moving from teenagers and beyond. I would foreshadow that I want to come back to a, in, in a few minutes a discussion about how to deal with teenagers when there's a rift in the relationship. And it also goes back to my observation about um, whether a young person seeking accreditation, going into college, you know, all the issues that, that come up at that time as a parent. Because um, it comes back to what has happened here with Gabrielle, for example. But I would say that there is a, a period where you have to ask yourself what you are wanting the relationship to be like over the long term as compared to the short-term behavior that you're wanting to see from your children. And my wife is uh, a, a very thoughtful and earnest writer, uh, and she writes at a website called Growing Human Kindness, which sort of speaks to her intention. But she's often reminded me that the relationship is more important than the circumstances of the day as to whether that garbage was ever emptied or kitchen was ever cleaned or, you know, weed was ever smoked. Um, it's those moments that are incidental to the larger relationship. And I think a lot of times I had the sense that if there was something that went wrong from a behavior standpoint, that there needed to be a correction relatively immediately. And I've learned largely through my wife that humans are much more adaptable and much more intelligent and can come back and can see something which might feel a bit like, like a, a redirecting of someone's behavior, but they can do so days or hours after the fact, weeks after the fact. So a lot of times I think what I've happened is I had young children growing into teenage years and I would want to correct what I saw as the wrong choice. And that has been something that I've learned is not actually so important, at least not in the moment. And that what's more important in the moment is to preserve the relationship. And then over time, whether it's hours or days or weeks, there can be a coming together again in the context of a safe, trusting relationship where those redirect moments or observations about what might be done differently can be handled. And so I think that's not being, not feeling the urgency of pointing out what's wrong is part of the most basic lesson for me. Mm. And how are you creating the safety for that? Uh, is it just that you're not jumping in and telling them like, Hey, you screwed up here and now like you're going to be shamed or like how else do you connect deeply with them so that that base level of trust is always there? Sure. I mean, I think you mentioned being near Vancouver and it, I think near Vancouver, there's something called the Newfeld Institute, which is put together by a guy named Newfeld, who's studied child development. And he became somewhat famous in writing a book with Gabor Mate on holding on to your kids. And so some of the ideas about parenting have certainly been influenced by him and a larger sort of attachment theory of parenting. But I think that one of the phrases that I've stuck with me from him was to collect before you direct, which is to say, how do you 
not walk into situation and start giving directions, or in my case, corrections, before I've collected. And that means to collect, well, for one, the eyes. How do you collect someone's eyes? You know, and you try and do that. It's a simple statement to say out loud, but in other words, the collection process is a larger parenting kind of idea that encompasses not just eye contact, but but physically, you know, in a small child's case, you can collect them into your lap. Uh, when they're 15, not so much. So then there's a little more nuance to what it means to collect someone. Um, and we could get into that. But I think that's been what I would say is the idea of collecting before you direct stems from a bigger realization that I have, which is embarrassing to say out loud. But I honestly treated a lot of my early childhood parenting not much differently than I did training my dogs. And I was, I am a dog person. And in my child, my children's years, we had German shepherds and big German shepherds that needed direction. You know, it, for a dog that has that kind of predator drive or sense of guard mentality, they need clear and strong direction. And they need to know what is expected of them and how they are going to be part of the family. It's just as a matter of safety, you know. The mistake I made was drawing too many analogies between trying to have young children be somehow, back to the example of instant correction. It's safe to say that dogs need to be corrected sooner rather than later. And dogs don't quite have the capacity to come back a few days later and say, you know, that thing about, you know, biting the mailman, that that can't happen again. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So, that's not going to work. And yet with children, adults, um, with humans, shall I say, it actually absolutely does. They can come back a few days later and have a different conversation. Even maybe it's like later on that night in bed when you're putting them to sleep. That's the time for a few subtle and short observations, which of course they feel deeply and they know, and you know, they're not stupid. Um, They're not dogs. Yeah. (laughs) Thank goodness. I, I resonate with that a lot. I was um, I talked to a, a synergetic play therapist once, and she was explaining to me this almost arc and then downfall of uh, dysregulation in the moment when something happens. And often parents will try to jump in right at the height when the kids are absolutely incapable of hearing or feeling or processing the lesson that you're trying to impart. And only after they come back down, usually through co-regulation, which is something that we as fathers can help with our children, can they then understand. So I think it's almost essential in many cases to do this later and to find that safe space. So I'm extremely excited, to be honest, that you're talking about this. And I would actually like to go into collection with teenagers and even adults. Uh, you said we might be able to come back to that, and I would like to come back to that. So how have you, rather than you know scooping them up on your lap, uh, you know, like a sort of Santa Claus character uh, when they're 15, like what, what do you do to collect them and to, to earn that trust from them, get their attention? I think an important principle of maintaining the relationship and collection, and there's another word, maybe besides those two that I would put on it, but it has to do with them feeling comfortable enough to talk. I have all kinds of words I want to say. I have all kinds of things that they should know. I'm just, you know, just give me a chance, boy. I'll just let them all know all about it. And so the best spaces that I've found are where we are doing something else and we're not as focused on 
the particular issue at hand or the thing that I want to give some direction to. I had a wonderful conversation about one o'clock in the morning today when my one of my dogs escaped and I was driving around the neighborhood with my 15-year-old who's just learning to drive and we're not looking at each other because we're looking straight ahead down the road or we're looking off to the right to the left for our missing dog. And it's remarkable how we had a poignant conversation about the drugs in his work environment where he works as a part-time job seems to be filled with users and or sellers of all kinds of drugs. And so the fact that we weren't looking eye to eye, we weren't sitting at the table, you know, we weren't, um, we could be in the the context of looking out and seeking out this dog, but it's remarkable the things he said out loud. And by not me not talking as much, made space for him to sort of fill up and come back and talk about this kind of open issue between us. How is he responding to all the pressures of drugs in his work environment? And it wasn't a direct question I asked of him, but it just sort of came out by us being together. And, and I have to say, I kind of set him up because I invited him to come out with me in the middle of the night. Um, and I knew that going into it when he was 15, that that would be a good place to have a conversation about that thing. And I wouldn't have nearly uh, taken that approach 10 years earlier when his older sister, Gabrielle, was 15. I wouldn't have recognized that opportunity so much better when you're doing things indirectly, mm. like driving that's in the car a, together. That's the second time I've heard the driving in the car approach, to be honest. I think I think that's just it. Uh, this is there's something about driving to a place together, side by side, not being challenging, not being confrontational. And uh, yeah, I've, I've put that in my back pocket 100% now that it's the second time I've come up with uh, parents of teenagers. So thank you for that. Um, when it comes to, actually, where do you want to go with this? Do you want to go into the relationship rift or do you want to talk about entrepreneurship? I think we could actually stay with the car situation because- Yeah, let's do it. Uh, when I say that I found myself you know, intentionally putting me and my 15-year-old in the car this morning at one o'clock, and I wouldn't have done so 10 years earlier. What I learned some years ago, this is going back, I would say, to 2017. At that time, my oldest child was 20 years old, and there is sort of a, a peak at which my stupidity peaked in, far, in her mind. That age it seems to be correlating my peak stupidity around her turning 18. So in the years leading up to 18, I was just about the dumbest person on the planet. As she moved into 19, my, my stupidity started to, to wane a little bit, having waxed at 18. By the time she was 20, she was willing to listen to a few things that I had to say. But at that time, what was happening when she was 20 years old was still just gently probing around the edges of a pretty big rift that developed when she was 15, 16, 17. And so the difficulties of that time and being a parent and my attitudes at that time being very much direct, very much about correction, inevitably led to a rift that I won't get into the details of it, but a big one and in really kind of a falling apart of a relationship there. So one of the things that that I said earlier about nonetheless, you know, kids notice what you're doing and 
what your values are, how explicit you are, talking about them or not, she had chosen not to go to college. And in part, she had been inspired to be a musician and had a talent since she was young, writing songs, playing songs on the guitar. And this had been a real bonding moment for us. From the time she was, I don't know, 11 or so, probably that time, I had been taking her to bars to play in open mics and taking her to bluegrass jams, you know, and we wouldn't, we wouldn't have a beer. We'd have a piece of cheesecake um, and we'd get a chance to, you know, enjoy the evening. This is also in a small Montana environment where bars have a lot more family feel to them perhaps than what you might be imagining in your mind. But um, that, that connection we had over music was definitely frayed as the teenage years peaked and the rift developed in a big way. So, I had all that time still encouraged her music as an idea for a career. But to be a songwriter, you don't just get a degree from somewhere, right? How do you persuade the world that you're worthy to listen to? And of course, of course, it's probably just what you create, right? Write a song and let's all hear it. And then we'll decide if we like it and if you want to buy one or buy your CD, you know, back in those days. So she was struggling with that process because it's hard to break out as a songwriter. And it's hard to find a way of paying for your life before you're famous. So in 2017, I found myself in conversations with her as she was reflecting upon what it would mean to try and sustain her interest in music and start to pay for her own life. Because at 20, she had moved out of the house and was starting to face the pressures of day-to-day living. So the idea came that she wanted to create an album, her first and she wanted a chance to kind of try out her songs and, and she wanted some way to kind of go out on the road and promote this and make it a thing. You know, how do you, you're, you're grappling to justify your existence as a singer songwriter. And sometimes it's just moving, getting out, exploring the country would be an exciting idea. So I'd only started to kind of think about being more indirect and learn more about collection as a parent. And so I suggested, why don't we drive together? Why don't we drive around the country together and I can make it a business trip and I can pay for hotel rooms. And as a struggling singer-songwriter, that's probably a good deal for you. You can ride for free. So we happened to set upon this plan where we would drive from Austin, Texas, and somewhat following my own business contacts and reasons that I could you know, string together, we drove from Austin, west through New Mexico and Arizona into Los Angeles. From Los Angeles, we headed north all the way up to Seattle. And that was as far west and north as we got from Texas. So from Seattle, we turned around and made a circuitous kind of roundabout way back to Texas through Montana, down to Denver, Kansas City, and beyond. So that trip over many weeks was something that was an opportunity for us to just stare down the highway. You're driving across West Texas. It's amazing what people will say when the, when the uh, road gets long and straight. And when you're driving up the California coast on a beautiful Highway 1, you know, in a, in a brilliant afternoon with the sunshine right there on the ocean, it's amazing how you have some insight about what it meant to be a father or what kind of relationship you want to have as a daughter. Um, and that's a process that I would never have imagined being sort of a 
a great way of indirectly repairing a relationship, but it absolutely did that. Wow. That's fantastic. That is just such a phenomenal story and just a way of doing things naturally. What were some of those things that you came to realize about how you wanted to have a relationship with her? What were some of those learnings along the way, along the highways? Well, I think that there's a principle that, again, probably comes back from Neufeld, who speaks a lot about hierarchy and being, being in a relationship where there's someone who can take direction. And so we often think about adults being those who can give the direction to their younger, but particularly for adolescents. And there is a wonderful opportunity to switch that role. And when you can put yourself in the dependent position as an adult and give the child an opportunity to show their mastery of something or to assert their independence and care for someone else, it just, it, to me, magic happens there. So you know, Neufeld tells a story of he often worked in juvenile detention facilities and he would go to these places and, you know, try and help them with whatever problems these kids were having. And he found it a wonderful icebreaker when he told the kids, when he got there, he said, oh, I locked my car, my keys in my car. I'm stuck. I can't get, I can't get back into my car as I'm locked. And of course, the kids in the juvie facility were like, oh, I can help you with that. And they jumped in there, popped open the lock on this door, you know, immediately and were like celebrated for their skill. And he's like, oh, thank you. I mean, I would never would have could have done it without you. And, and so how does that relate to my story? I think one of the things we did in this trip was she wanted to perform her music. She knows all about recording sound. I thought I'd also want to use this chance to meet people that I would be wanting to for a business reason. And I set it up as an interview. So Essentially, the construct was I was interviewing people for a book that I intend to write, and she was my sound engineer. She organized all the equipment. She made choices about what microphone. And then to 2017, this was not necessarily you know, groundbreaking thing, but we've come a long way since 2017, how we think record podcasts you know, and equipment and the, the common sort of things we take for granted today about recording audio certainly wasn't as clear to me in 2017. And yet she handled all of that. So she set up the sound and she did all the recording. She managed our data files as we collected media over the course of the trip. And I relied upon her to organize that with people who were important and had a, a precious window of time for a live in-person interview. We went to a, you know, someone's office in San Francisco and they had a very tight schedule and she had to make the sound work in a space that didn't really work very well for sound, a lot of echoes and so forth. So I think I depended on her and it recognized, I think out of that process, she recognized she does have this capacity inside her. There are real skills that she's bringing to bear, whether Spotify is making her a hit songwriter or not, she's still be able to, to say, I have worth, I'm needed, I know something of value. My dad respects that. In fact, my dad needs that. And so that's the one example. Wow. That is beautiful, man. I'm, I'm feeling that in my body right now. I just, I almost long for that myself because of how good that feels. And I'm just, I'm already getting so much. So thank you for sharing all this. What else? I just want to hear you talk, man, because I'm, I'm so inspired by the way that you are thinking about this and doing this. 
are there other things on this topic that comes up? Because we can obviously go into uh, entrepreneurship. I would love to know sort of what your goals are now with your children and your relationship with them. But was there anything uh, that came up on that story or, or connecting or collecting uh, before we move on? Because I am just a sponge right now. Yeah. Well, I think that one of the things that that trip showed us, I think about this word indirect as like a parenting principle. Again, I was repairing a relationship with her, but it so happened. And are these coincidences? You know, we can't, who's to say what is meant for us versus what we stumble our way into. But one of the things that happened off that drive up the California coast is that I was born in California and I have family there that have become estranged from me in ways that feel unfair or like I never wanted it to be. And so one of the meetings that we set up was with an uncle that I haven't seen for years. And because we're largely estranged, estranged, he has never met my kids really that I can remember. So we had an opportunity to meet up with my uncle at a cafe in a little coastal town, California. And I brought my daughter and she witnessed my uncle and myself repairing the relationship. We had, after lunch, it went well enough, you know, not knowing how that would go, that he invited us to go visit the grave of my grandmother, his mother. And that was how that happened and so forth was, was one of the inciting moments for the rift so many years ago. So we, we literally stood over my grandmother's grave and we had a chance to look down not looking eye to eye, not looking at each other, but looking down at her grave, we were able to talk about what had happened so many years ago and how we wished it would have been different, how we would have done things differently today, him and I both, and how we wanted to repair. And my daughter was standing off to the side, kind of, you know, not looking at us either, but listening, right? Listening for that that chance where we basically, as best as two kind of grumpy adult men can say to each other, I'm sorry, I love you, I want a relationship with you. Indirectly, we, you know, that was the gist. Yeah. And I think that my daughter was able to witness that in a way that saw you know, a deep rift being repaired. Did she make all the connections to her and my own rift at that moment? I mean, undoubtedly, there's something that came out of that where she was able to witness and draw her own thoughts about what she might want to say to me if we had that kind of moment together as well. So that's just one example, I think, of how looking at where you're going through and dealing with other stuff, and yet as you're doing it together, um, there's all kinds of observations and insights that could come in healing just from, from experiencing things together, even if it's not directly on the relationship you're trying to repair. And I was, I was directly trying to repair the relationship with my uncle. So yes, that was intentional. But the outcome of that was my daughter's witnessing of it, no doubt, really informed our own repair. Yeah. Wow. 
to be honest, I want to be the worst podcast host and just say continue. But <laughs> I, I'm actually interested when you said uh, the repair there and doing some of your own healing. What has that looked like in your life? Have you engaged consciously in healing work or in just, you know, I might call it growth work if you'd prefer, but what has that looked like for you? Have there been things over the last number of years, whether that's when your kids were born, because that's when a lot of my um, stuff came up, if you will. I was triggered very much by my kids and that led me to this entire journey, which is now culminating in dad work. But what has that journey looked like for you? And have there been spaces along that, that particular things have done to really help. And, and the point of this is to both hear your story and be able to have men see themselves in you, but also to share tools or practices that worked. Does anything come up in your own healing journey that might be useful to dive into? Well, I think that there's been a gradual reflection on my part as to where I have been pushing for a certain outcome and we can talk about that in the context of behavior of teenagers, or we can talk about it in the responsiveness of dogs, or we can say the success in business. And where my, my lessons have come, no matter where the avenue, whatever the, the situation has been, how much I can force myself to accomplish has been a continual place I've run up against. And for me, the lesson so much was coming to a point of futility with what I didn't want and couldn't change. Because if you imagine yourself as having such capacity, and even as a dad, you are the provider, you know, what can a dad not solve? It's hard to make a real list and feel good about it. Like, why can't I solve everything? Or why can't at least I, I fix the problems before me? with as much effort as I can muster. And so there is, you know, an idea about when, when the brain reaches a point of futility, finally it can relax and then have this a magical quality of saying, okay, I'm going to step back. There's, a, there's another way that I have to adapt to the situation rather than forcing my will to try and get done what I I'm not able to get done. And as long as the mind or the brain is convinced of the you know, solution it's working on, it almost keeps banging its head against the wall. Like, I'm just going to keep trying to make it this way. And you think about that in terms of having well-behaved children. You think about that in terms of like a more successful business, more customers, or more profit. And when whatever it is you're working on or trying to do, the way you're trying to do it anyways – finally you can be recognized as not working in the place where you feel a level of futility, the brain adapts and comes and looks at it from a new perspective in, in a new way. And so I'd say that that has been my hardest lesson because I feel so capable and I have such a strong sense of my will, you know, my creative, imaginative driving forward it's a lot of, you know, it's a very masculine sort of sensibility. And so that has been manifest in all kinds of ways. And one of the things that really made that clear to me was I've been very active, athletic in, in my experience. And I had a moment the year after this long, you know, 5,000 mile drive with my daughter. A year later, I found myself 
in the intensive care unit of hospital essentially had a stroke or a brain aneurysm when I was bleeding from the inside of my brain. And in that case, I had no capacity, right? I couldn't sit up. I couldn't, I was completely at the mercy of all those around me. And it's another story unto itself, but I ended up having conversations with my daughter passing on sort of instructions as if I was going to be, you know, if I was dead, how to carry on or try and recover things in the business. Because one of the things that's happened after that long road trip was my daughter came back and said, hey, dad, I really think, you know, if there's a way that I could work for you or help you in your business, I think that would be great. Because at the time she was working at a pizza restaurant in the evenings, and if you're trying to be a singer-songwriter, you really kind of want your evenings free, right? You want to go to the open mic in Austin, Texas. You want to go to the concert, and yet you're working as a waitress trying to be get enough money for your next recording session. So the healing that came of that long trip led to her asking, hey, could you help me? Could I help you? Can we help each other? Right? Can we work together? And it's not crystal clear to me whether I explicitly made that offer at first or she did, but it doesn't really matter because together, you know, driving down the road, it came to be that we had this idea we could work together and help each other out. I had some extra work. I didn't care about her absence of a college degree. I know her work ethic. She got to know my business from that long trip. And she, over the course then of the next year, had found herself working part-time for my company rather than some restaurant. And I enabled her the flexibility to work on her music career on the side and encouraged it. So a year later, when I found myself in the hospital, completely at the mercy of, of, of God, of the doctors, of my body's limitations, she was the one that I was passing off instructions to. Like, okay, let's make sure this invoice, you know, this is important. Like I literally had my four children parade before me, like saying goodbye four o'clock in the morning, um, my friend had to go fetch him from home and bring him to the uh, intensive care unit. So my daughter in that context was like, I was passing off business instructions and not you know, able to like carry on. So I think out of that moment, I ended up leaving the hospital um, a week later without any symptoms and without even any intervention. They never had or performed brain surgery on me like they thought they might have to. And that's a, maybe a longer story. But out of that process, I think I realized that there's so much that we try and make happen, we try and force our way to seeing through that we have to just really reach a point of, of not feeling so responsible for every outcome that we hope for and imagine. And that's probably, you know, even to this day, I still try and learn that lesson, remind myself of it. Yeah. Wow. Thank you for sharing all that. Have you read 4,000 Weeks by Oliver Berkman? No, I haven't. Um, That's the last. Uh, it, Go ahead. It's just like exactly what you're talking about is that when you finally realize it's impossible for you to do all the things that your to do list or your will thinks is possible, you're able to shed this basically anxiety and worry that you should be able to do an impossible task. And so that just brought that up that if anyone is, is sort of 
really hitting on this point that you're bringing up, I strongly recommend. Um, I just finished it a few days ago and took copious notes. And it just really relieved me of the burden of being able to do everything that my productivity brain and my desire, because I'm the same way, just push harder and everything will come into play. Yeah, it just it's, it's relieving and allows you to live more in the moment, which it sounds like this did for you. But please continue. Well, certainly, yeah. I, you know, I haven't read that book, but um, the last book I read, finished a few days ago myself, was uh, Memos from the Head Office by a guy named Perry Marshall, who came to fame about the time that I was trying to build like Shopify plus MailChimp plus WordPress. That same like 2003, he wrote a book on Google AdWords, and that catapulted him to be sort of the king of the internet advertising world. And over years, he developed a big following and sort of business strategy. But one thing he found last year is how much there was uncertainty in the business world, uncertain in everyone's world with, with what's changed you know, in 2020 and now in, now in 2022. So it's still all mixed up. Was people's in his, his business networking group um, seeking guidance from God, which is what he calls the head office. And there's a story about why they're called memos from the head office. But he saw an extraordinary explosion in interest among his very business-minded community in people seeking guidance and not having all the answers themselves, but turning you know, to a higher power or the head office, as he says. So it was so popular in his business networking group that he wrote a book about and shared experiences. And I had that opportunity earlier today. I have now a second daughter helping me in my business. And, and she and I were discussing about, as we think about this idea of memos from the head office, how do we turn over some of our own agency or strategy and master plan of how we're going to go forward in our business to you know, a higher power? And that's something that I think resonates with a lot of people who are trying to make sense of the world today, whether it's in their business you know, or how they, how they raise their kids up, how they educate them, Right. So it, it makes, I think, for in an uncertain world, where do we put our trust in? And for me, it's only been a chance to kind of remind myself and then also just share that with, with now two daughters who work in my company, that there's always a place to you know, look beyond ourselves for you know, guidance. Yeah, and that is a beautiful reminder is this uh, idea of surrender, at least for me, uh, this is the first, uh, I'm about a year into my own journey of being able to surrender and not to push and not to have to know the outcome before it happens. And to trust that, you know, if I am operating out of my own values, that things will work out, however they work out, they're going to come and I can't force that. And like you say, to trust that whatever the higher power is that you believe in, universe, God, whatever. For me, releasing myself to whatever comes of that has been both relieving, but also I feel more in my own authorship now for some reason. In giving some of that up, I feel more myself. And I just love that this is a thing that more people are realizing now, which I'm seeing every day in my communities and you're talking about in the business community, is being able to just go like, I don't know, but I'm going to ask for help and I'm going to trust and I'm just going to see what happens here. So that's a fantastic reminder and I appreciate that. And I'm going to add the book uh, that you just mentioned to the show notes. Is there anything else on that topic or, or books perhaps that you've read lately that are worth passing on? Because I still would like to know uh, a couple of things if you have them on raising entrepreneurial children, because this is so hard to get 
out of our own way and let them do things that entrepreneurs require, like taking risk. Uh, so I'll leave those two sort of angles for you uh, just to see if anything comes up. The, the big idea that I think comes out of a lot of the things you've been talking about is being able to listen and not talk quite so much. So as a parent of four children over the last 25 years, there's probably a lot more regret I have for the times when I didn't just listen. And, you know, we're talking about this book about business owners listening for business advice from the head office, so to speak. It's hard when you feel like so much is on your shoulders and you have to decide, you have to drive things forward. So whether it's with, you know, my 15-year-old in the car, you know, earlier this morning, in the middle of the night, I actually have a lot to say about this work environment that's filled with lots of drug users and drug sellers. And I just like had to like, just sit on my hands, but like, cover my mouth, like just listen. Like it's amazing the things that came out on his own that he already observes. And, you know, for me to trust that as a 15 year old, it's, it's like the tension of, well, he, he's old enough to like have observations. Is he old enough to like see what he should be seeing? Now, if you have a five-year-old, well, it's amazing the things five-year-olds have told me too. I wish I would have listened more to five-year-olds. And of course, now I have a 25-year-old and to be listening to her experience, what she's observing as the world sort of changes here. I think that's the main, main idea that I would encourage any parent if they're thinking about what they can do more of, it's, it's probably listen and then let go of that sense of urgency to add your part, whether it's a correction or an encouragement, there's time for that, you know, to come around later. And it's amazing how receptive kids can be when they feel that spaciousness, both to speak on their own and the spacious, not just not to feel the kind of quick correction and how much they may come back you know, before you have a chance to circle back to that topic and, and they'll make some observation themselves about what they've noticed. And it's like, it's what you wanted to say to them and they've already kind of come around to it, but it might have taken a day or two and you didn't rush in. So that's, um, I think that's where it stands for me. Amazing. Yeah. I, that almost, I, I'm going to get here. I know I keep saying I will. Uh, entrepreneurship. <laughs> Do you have any last thoughts on that? Because that actually brings to mind the idea that if you allow a child the space and the freedom to make things of them, of their own uh, volition or their own brain, their own power of thought, I think that in itself is probably a great way to set children up to have a more entrepreneurial spirit, whether or not they become entrepreneurs. Because at the end of the day, you as an entrepreneur, me as an entrepreneur, we're completely responsible for our output and sort of what decisions we make. And it requires no one telling us what to do and being able to make decisions without that um, outside input from a parent or a boss, I think is, is important. So can we close on just a few thoughts that you have observed in raising entrepreneurial children? Yes, I would say that what I'm hoping for is a child that is ultimately moving into an adult who's self-directed and directed from their own sense of self, kind of with a capital S. And I would hope that they would feel the 
the being drawn towards where they feel called to contribute to their society. And I hope that my younger, you know, my, my aspiring singer songwriter who, who is, a you know, working today full-time in my business as an e-commerce marketer professional still has this real story to tell through words and song and music. And I think that that seed of entrepreneurship will manifest in her someday in a way that is well beyond my e-commerce business and my consulting firm. So she's going to be able to draw what lessons she can working with me and, and the encouragement from the very young age to sort of accredit herself and to create something and not wait for someone's permission to record a song or an album. And that, that will manifest, I think, in, in ways, whether it's explicitly her own boss and being entrepreneurial or nonetheless creatively going out in the world and not waiting for someone to give her permission to create the thing she wants to create. That's the bigger, I think, idea. So whether you put the word entrepreneurship on it, it's how do you bring children out where they can be the creators that they were intended to be and start to fulfill their own vision of what they can contribute. So much of what jobs give us is that, you know, as an entrepreneur, I know the work needs to be done. I write the job description. I have the standard operating procedures. I want to just fill someone in that role. Like, this is the work I need to be done. Come sit down and do it. In this way, I'll pay you. There's a place for that. But for me, I would hope my own children have a capacity to be more imaginative. I think that's really what we're looking to need more of in the world today is imagination. And that's something that I see now. My youngest child is a 15-year-old. He's asking questions about business models and profitability. He works at a bike shop. And there's lots of opportunities in the bike world in the last year or so, if you don't know, bicycling is perhaps the biggest you know, hobby or sport and bicycles are experiencing shortages as people buy so many of them because you can do it outdoors. It's safe, you know, whatever the case may be. And his this whole inspired dialogue we're having about the profitability of a bike business and what he's taking by sweeping the floor and working in the service shop is translated into a larger conversation about how the supply chains of bicycles has affected the resale price of used bikes and the profit that comes from that. And he's thinking about different ideas. And that's, I see the seeds of entrepreneurialism in him there. And I think that's where that leads to, who knows, but as long as we don't uh, force our own will upon our own template, upon what we children hope them to be, you know, what they can create on their own is, is the best we can do. And I guess that comes back to giving some space, listening to them, not rushing in so quickly with what we all the things we have to say for them and to them. And being indirect. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Patrick, this has truly been a pleasure. I have I had no idea what to expect, to be honest. We hadn't talked before this. We had a couple of talking points, and I am so grateful and very excited by what we're about to share when this goes live. Uh, would you like to give people a way to contact you or find out more about you? Sure. Uh, you can find out more about me at Patrick Pittman, P-I-T-M-A-N.com. Also, ebusinessbrands, B-R-A-N-D-S.com. Amazing. Well, thank you for spending the time and sharing so much of your wisdom with me. Yeah. Thank you for having me, Kurt.
that's it for this episode. Thank you so much for listening. It means the world. To find out more about everything that we talked about in the episode today, including show notes, resources, and links to subscribe, leave a review, work with us, go to dad.work slash pod. That's D-A-D dot W-O-R-K slash P-O-D. Type that into your browser, just like a normal URL, dad.work slash pod. You'll find everything there you need to become a better man, a better partner, and a better father. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time.